Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning. For those of you who don't know, my name is Jason. I am the co-minister here at the Oceanside Sanctuary along with Janelle. Uh, we are excited to be sort of rounding third base, so to speak, on our current teaching series, which is called Building a Community of Love. It's what we've been talking about for the past four weeks. This is going to be our second to last uh, session in that teaching series. But as all someone already, Jen actually already said up here this morning, what we're really doing here is attempting to build a community of love. And so we've been exploring maybe what that means, what that looks like, and how we can take passages of scripture to clue us in to some of those uh, uh, possibilities, how it is that we might be able to actually accomplish that. So if you would, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. If you have your Bible, Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses uh, 17 through 22. If you don't have your Bible, as always, we'll put it up here. But before we jump into the passage, uh, just take a moment. Would you please pray with me? God, we thank you again for today, for this opportunity for us to come to this place, to offer our hearts and our minds to you to search for a sense of connection to something that is genuinely good. Most of us are here, God, because we believe, even if it's just a small part of us, that there is still something good that we refer to when we talk about God. For many of us, that goodness is abundant and deep and pervasive and for many of us, it's been called into question. So we ask God that you would really create a space where we can freely explore and discern and discover what is good and right and true. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, listen, uh, here's the thing about having a grandchild. For those of you who don't know, uh, I'm becoming a radically different person. Like, I didn't expect that my personality would change. I'm doing all kinds of extraordinarily undignified things, like crawling on the floor next to Otis's face, like desperately trying to get his attention, you know, like make him smile at me. And this doesn't have anything to do with the fact that he'll smile at Savannah, his mother. He'll smile at Janelle, his grandmother. He'll smile at Griffin, my son-in-law, but I seem to be not prompting the smiles. And so the the level of like, I don't know, neuroses or pathology that this is producing in me is unsettling. But, you know, the truth is, is that we change each other, right? The introduction of children into our lives changes us. The introduction of grandchildren into our lives changes us. Uh, the introduction of a partner in our lives radically shapes and changes us. And this is something that we know to be true that the people that we surround ourselves with, the people that we enter into relationships with, they're not just there for our convenience, they're not just there for our gratification, they're just not just there to like reflect a good version of us that we hope exists, they also do shape and change who we are over time. Today I wanna to talk about that idea, that the people that we enter into relationship with actually shape us and change who we are, either for better or for worse. And oftentimes it's both. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17, 
Paul writes this, and he is writing to the Christians at the church in Ephesus. He's at this point writing about Christ. He's writing about the gospel. And picking picking it up in verse 17, he says, So he came, meaning Christ, So he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God. Verse 20, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. And in him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are also built together spiritually into a dwelling place. And here we see that Paul turns to yet another metaphor to describe community. We've talked about other metaphors in other passages uh, that Paul and Jesus both speak to, oftentimes agricultural metaphors. In this case, there's a different kind of metaphor. This is sort of an architectural metaphor at first blush. It seems to be the metaphor of a building, and Paul uses this same metaphor elsewhere also. The idea that this community that God sort of inspires and initiates is a bit like a building, right? A building that comes together. We'll get to that in just a moment, but I want to first point out in verse 17 that Paul leads with this idea that God is peace. That God is peace. And that peace in verse 17 that is proclaimed somehow reconciles those who are aliens and strangers to each other. What does it mean to say that God is peace? I I think the first thing that it means, before it can possibly mean anything else, is that God is not against you. If God is peace, then God is not hostility. God is not harm. God is not a threat. God is not against you. And God, perhaps more radically, is not going to hurt you. God's not going to hurt you. And I want to invite you just for a moment to reflect on how often your exposure to religion or spirituality, especially in the Christian tradition, hangs upon the proposition that God is going to hurt you. Unless you believe this list of things, unless you enter into this kind of relationship, unless you read a particular version of the Bible that was written in a particular year and translated by a particular group of people. And if that's not the Bible you're reading, then God is going to hurt you. What if the beginning of the proclamation of the good news of God, the gospel, is simply to begin with at at the very least, at bare minimum, is that God is not going to hurt you. God doesn't want to hurt you. God is not, in fact, according to Paul, hostile. And there's a logic that this produces. 
if God is not against you, if God is not going to harm you, if God is not going to hurt you, then please, Paul says, for God's sake, stop hurting each other. So he came and he proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. We have two different groups of people for through him, both of us, those who are near and those who are far off, both of us have access to one spirit. If you're the kind of person like me who doesn't mind writing in their Bible, it wouldn't hurt to like highlight or circle the word spirit because we're going to see it again. It's important. The point is, is that those who are far off, those who are near, those who are in these two different camps, the strangers and aliens, somehow this message of peace brings them together. Now stick pin in that idea. Let's move on. In verse 20, Paul says this whole thing, this whole notion that God is not going to hurt you, God is not going to harm you, and that that lack of harm, that lack of threat or hostility from God ought to eliminate hostility between you and others. That whole idea is what this is about. That's my definition of the next verse, right? Verse 20, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. This is where we get this sort of building metaphor. Paul says this idea that God is peace, not harm, that God is peace, not a threat. In fact, that's the whole edifice it's the foundation, it's the walls, it's the roof, it's the shingles, it's the electrical, it's the plumbing. When you turn on the spigot, peace comes out. It's the whole thing. Hostility is a crack in the foundation of many expressions of religion. And of course, every structure, right, is a shelter. It's a place of safety, and these are words, I think, of safety. So I think that metaphor is appropriate, but I think it's also true that structures, dwellings, houses, buildings, the built environment that we occupy, it doesn't just shelter us, it also shapes us. It also changes who we are. We become what we inhabit. And I think Paul is hinting towards this when he says that in him the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also, verse 22, are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. This notion of being built together spiritually is Paul's way in the first century of the ancient Near East of saying something that we know today is true from a biopsychosocial perspective and that is that you and I are being knitted together and formed and shaped by our environment. You know, like in the, I teach human development classes, right? At Cal State San Marcos. And the first thing that you talk to human development students in Human Development 101 is you introduce them to the age old controversy of like nature versus nurture, right? I mean, it's been like 50 years since anybody took that seriously. Because at this point we know that is both, that we are shaped deeply by our natures and that those natures are further shaped significantly by our nurture. And that nurture is really important in the first three years, but it doesn't stop there. 
we are being spiritually built together every day by who we're with, by who we love, by who we feed, by who feeds us, by who we touch, by who touches us, by who we hate, by who hates us. We are being spiritually built. And this is, I think, what church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a dwelling in which God builds, builds us into something good by God's Spirit. The trouble is, and it you know, wouldn't be a sermon at the Oceanside Sanctuary if we didn't talk about this. The trouble is, so many religious communities are so bad. I mean, we're not so great either. But man, you know, we talked the very first week of this series, I told you that social science tells us that there are deep pro-social benefits to being involved in church. That if you are a person who regularly attends church, that you are healthier, happier, and you live longer. And that is 100% true. It's one of the really powerful findings of social science that if you attend church regularly, you're happier. And if you attend church more regularly, you're more happier. So y'all, come to church. Amen. But many religious communities, and bear with me, if this frustrates you, but many religious communities do a great deal of harm to the people who show up. In fact, one of the things we also know from social science is that the higher control a religious group is, the more harm they do. What that means is the more that I try to exert control over you, in the name of God, the more harm I am doing to you. And this produces communities that are flatly immoral. And when I say immoral, I don't mean like, you know, uh, all of the uh, pedophile scandals in the Roman Catholic Church, or before that in the Southern Baptist Church, or any of the other like high-profile leadership failings and abuses that we see that have become stereotypical in religious communities. I'm not even talking about that kind of immorality, because even those traditions would say that that's immoral. I'm talking about a different kind of immorality. I'm talking about high levels of racism and misogyny and homophobia and a kind of politics of cruelty that tend to accompany high-control religious groups. We, we know also, for example, a lot of really great research has been done by a social uh, psychologist named Bob Altemeyer. He's Canadian. Don't hold that against him. Bob Altemeyer spent his entire career, he's retired now, spent his entire career studying authoritarianism. And what he found is that the higher authoritarianism you find in a religious community, the higher levels of racism, xenophobia, misogyny, and homophobia you find. In fact, the Venn diagram of highly authoritarian religious communities and groups who are highly bigoted is a circle. The correlation between high authoritarianism and bigotry is so tight, it's so close, that social psychologists don't know what comes first. They don't know if religious communities 
produce bigots or if bigots are just attracted to authoritarian communities. But, but listen, if you're in a community of faith, this should be a real concern to you. Be, because it means that there's a high level of harm being done in the name of God. And that harm isn't just kind of like public immorality, it's also deep levels of trauma for individuals. There's the emergence of a whole new kind of PTSD-related disorder called religious trauma. And some of you know that at this church in the spring, we offer a group for people who need to process religious trauma because they have experienced harm in other religious communities. But there are two common features psychologists have found about religious trauma. People have been traumatized in other communities. The first is the dominant message that you are not okay. You're not okay. There's something deeply wrong with you. You are horribly, spiritually, irrevocably broken. Does that sound familiar to anybody? You're not okay. And the second dominant message is you are not safe. You're not okay and you're not safe. Therefore, you need us. We can fix you and we can keep you safe from those people out there who want to hurt you. Janelle and I last Wednesday had the extreme displeasure of attending the Oceanside Unified School District board meeting uh, where a group of allies had been called to show up because protesters had targeted that meeting to protest the inclusion of uh, LGBTQ safe literature in, in school public libraries. And so a whole parade of people showed up and co-opted the comment time and said some of the most vile, hateful, homophobic, racist, and yes, misogynistic things from the platform with a microphone and invoked the name of Jesus over and over again in support of it. This is a very real challenge for those of us who claim to be people of faith. One other common feature of spiritual trauma is that the higher control your old religious community was, the more traumatic it is not just for you to be there, but the more traumatic it is for you to leave. And so people who are in high control communities of faith, they experience harm, they experience abuse, they can experience spiritual gaslighting, and then when they finally muster the courage to leave because they have to for their own health and well-being, they experience tremendous harm on the other side of it because they have distanced themselves from one of the most important groups in their lives. And they have been indoctrinated to believe that it's not safe for them to go. And so they experience all those same effects over and over again. 
So how can we know? How can we know if the Oceanside Sanctuary is a good religious community or a harmful religious community? This is an important question, I think. Uh, the answer is, because I say so. No. <laughs> I'm so gratified that you laughed. Well, there's a social science answer to this that's pretty straightforward. You've probably already discerned it. The social science answer is, if the God that is worshipped is a non-controlling God, then it's more likely to be a healthy community. It turns out that if you teach people that God is an authoritarian, that God has strict boundaries of control, and if you step outside those boundaries, God is going to harm you for your own good, the people who tend to worship that kind of God will behave that way towards others. And so the first answer is we endeavor as much as possible here to hold up a God of love. And a God of love does not mean that literally every behavior in your life is acceptable and good. A God of love is a God who simply does not try to control, manipulate, or coerce you in any way. Because that's not love. Love is non-controlling, non-coercive, non-manipulative. Love does what is best for you, for your sake, not for mine, not for my ego, not to uphold my ideals. Paul also has an answer to this question. How do we know if we are a good and safe and healthy spiritual community? His answer, I think, is in verse 21 and 22. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together spiritually, we've already talked about that, into a dwelling place for God. God's answer is, you know a community is healthy and safe and good because God lives there. Turns out that we're not just building a community, a dwelling place for us, we're also building a structure, a construct, a dwelling place for God's spirits. And I know this is a hard answer, right? Because if I say, well, God lives here, everybody thinks that God lives in their church. And I'm not just talking about like some spiritual sense, like some sort of mystical encounter with like the tangible presence of God. I mean, that, if that's you, if you experience a sense of the tangible presence of God, that's great. I think that can be very helpful, but it's also very subjective. And not everybody experiences that. So cultivating a sense of spirituality, a sense of connection, a sense of the presence of something other in this space that is holy and good and accepting and welcoming and loving is deeply important for a spiritual community. But I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. I think when Paul says God lives there by God's spirit, Paul means that definition of the Spirit of God that we visited a few weeks ago in Galatians 5.22. The question is, not does some intangible presence that you perceive live in this place, the question is, does love live in this place? Is this a place where we experience love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, 
faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These outcomes are evidence that God lives here. To put it another way, if you find a community and what is tangibly present in that place is hate, misery, hostility, intolerance, cruelty, greed, inconsistency, forcefulness, and hysteria, you can be sure that God does not live there. I don't know what to call what has become of right-wing evangelicalism other than hysteria. We don't talk about it enough, in my opinion. And I almost never openly criticize other churches or other traditions. Because I deeply respect every religious tradition. I mean that. I have very dear friends who are Catholics and Episcopalians and Evangelicals and Buddhists and Jewish and agnostic and humanist chaplains. I don't particularly care what their doctrine is. I do care if they love or model joy or proclaim peace. To the extent that they do, God lives with them. We all have our way of experiencing that. We all have our different sort of religious styles and preferences and cultures. That's okay. In fact, I think it's really good. I think it's really necessary. The world is full of amazing variation and difference. There are so many ways to be in the world. And so many of them produce goodness. But you know that the Spirit of God is present when those who are aliens and strangers are not judged and ostracized and outcast, but instead are brought near by the Spirit of God. And that is what we are trying to do. And when I say we, I don't mean me. Or me and Janelle. Or me and Janelle and Alex and Joey. This mission of creating a community of genuine love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, it is not a professional endeavor. Janelle and Joey and Alex and myself, we just get paid to keep the lights on. And like, remember to pay the bills. And study and lead us in good worship and do all those things that you all don't have time to do. But listen, this will never be a community of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control unless you all are doing it. I need you to help me become a dwelling in which God lives by God's Spirit. Now, some of you aren't so sure, that's okay. Some of you are trying to figure out if it's even worth your time to be a part of a community like that. That's okay. Some of you have experienced so much harm in other religious spaces 
that you're not sure that any expression of religion can be good. That's how I feel every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. But every Sunday, you all convince me that it's possible. And so I keep coming back. Hopefully, we're all doing that for each other. This is what we're trying to accomplish here. It's not easy. It takes labor. Remember that talk? We're trying to birth something. Let's do that together. Amen? Amen. God, we thank you so much for today. We ask that you would be present in our midst. We don't just mean that we ask you to be present in the tangible sense, the sense in which we experience an awareness of something bigger or other than us. We want that, and we're grateful for that when we have it. But what we really mean is that we want to be people of love, whose lives and actions and beliefs and politics reflect your goodness. And so we ask that you would make that true. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us today. And if you like what's happening here, we have other ways you can get involved. Uh, please join us uh, for our Ash Wednesday service, which is on Wednesday, February 26th, or 22nd, from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. here at the Oceanside Sanctuary, and it's also online. This service will be a solemn reminder of human mortality and the need for reconciliation with God leading us powerfully into the season of Lent. Um, we also have our new uh, sermon series starting up, um, our Giving Up Toxic Jesus for Lent. Uh, this sermon series starts on Sunday, February 26th at 10 o'clock a.m. at Oceanside here, as well as online. So um, this will give us an opportunity to go deeper into the season of Lent with us as we uh, explore the true message of Christ at that time. For all of these events and more, you can fill out the Connect card or you can go um, on to OceansideSanctuary.org um, slash calendar where you can scan the QR code, all of that. And we are a 501c3, and so we're a nonprofit, and we rely on the gifts and donations of people just like you. And so if you'd like to, you can go to OceansideSanctuary.org slash give, or you can drop off um, some money here if you'd like as well. We'd love to have you join us on this adventure. And just thinking of um, what Jason was sharing and Janelle and the music, how beautiful everything was. I was thinking, how can we move this into this week? And um, I love a, a few things that I wrote down, acting justly, that God is a God of peace. Um, and that we are filled with love. God is love, and that we need to challenge ourselves to step forward in that this week, not just today, but in this week as we encounter people, um, that we can be love to them. So with that, this concludes our gathering, and may the peace of God be with you. Amen.